Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth. Episode 10, The Byzantine Wars. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the rise of Robert Giscard and his conquest of southern Italy and Sicily. We left him having just evicted the last of the Byzantine troops from Bari, ending a thousand years of imperial history in the peninsula. Another man, perhaps, would have taken advantage of his success to enjoy the final years of life. He was now in his mid-sixties, elderly by medieval standards, and there were always the pleasures of hunting in the Apulian countryside or relaxing in one of his many palaces to distract him. But Robert Giscard had no intention of retiring. In the first place, he was far too easily bored. He infinitely preferred fighting to governing. And secondly, he had become obsessed with the Byzantine Empire. For the past two decades, since he had first arrived in Italy, Giscard had been fighting Byzantium, and the contact had left its mark. He had started by copying parts of the imperial seals into his own, and had then graduated to using the Byzantine title Dux Imperator in his public decrees. This was equal parts vanity and shrewdness. Most of his subjects were thoroughly Hellenized, and posing as a Byzantine successor added a bit of legitimacy to his rule. Just in case anyone missed the point, he had a copy made of the imperial robes of state that he was careful to don at every opportunity. All this strutting around got the attention of Constantinople, which was under disastrous attack in the east and wanted to make peace with the Normans as quickly as possible. The Emperor Michael VII had a young son named Constantine, and Giscard had a young daughter named Helena. A marriage proposal was arranged, and the Norman duke was promised a fancy new title. He could now call himself Nobilissimus, only a step below a Caesar. He could wear the color purple, and could reasonably hope that one day a descendant of his would sit on the imperial throne. Young Helena was shipped off to Constantinople, and Giscard sat back to congratulate himself on a nice bit of diplomacy. Unfortunately for him, events in Byzantium moved faster still. Just after Helena arrived, Emperor Michael was overthrown by an old general named Nicephorus III. The Norman princess was dispatched to a convent, and her prospective husband Constantine was demoted to persona non grata at the imperial court. The news of it all was disappointing for Giscard, but only momentarily. The Byzantines were weak, overextended against the Turks and vulnerable. An attack now would almost certainly yield great fruit. In the meantime, Helena would make a convenient pawn to provoke the war. The first step was to make an ultimatum that would be rejected out of hand. Playing the part of the aggrieved father, Giscard demanded that his daughter be instantly restored to favor, married to Constantine, and crowned empress. This would have been political suicide for Nicephorus. He could hardly start honoring the son of the man he had displaced, and he refused. Giscard immediately declared war and started marshalling a great invading army. To bolster his effort, he found a wandering monk who he claimed was the deposed Emperor Michael, somehow escaped from captivity just in time to give an official blessing to the invasion. The ruse didn't fool anyone. The monk wasn't a particularly good actor, but Giscard hardly cared. He'd gotten his war, and now he was going to claim his throne. It took nearly a year to raise an army, but the effort produced a magnificent result. Medieval Western armies didn't tend to be particularly diverse, but Robert had recruited from all over southern Italy. Muslims from Sicily mixed with Lombards and Greeks from Apulia and Calabria, while French and Norman adventurers filled out the rest. Cities all along the Italian coast were conscripted to build ships, and when they couldn't fill the demand, additional ones were bought from Ragusa and the Dalmatian coast. By the spring of 1081, 
There were 150 ships waiting to transport 20,000 soldiers, horses, and besieging equipment across the Aegean. All that was needed was the command from the 64-year-old Giscard, but before he could give it, the ground in Constantinople shifted again. Nicephorus III was overthrown by a brilliant young general named Alexius, who sent word that he was prepared to recognize all of Giscard's demands. The disgraced Constantine was to be restored as co-emperor, Helena was to be rescued from her convent, and the pair would be married immediately. Giscard's temper was legendary, and his rage on this occasion was especially fierce. The poor emissary who brought the news, expecting that it would be gladly received, had to flee from the chamber in fear for his life, and for two days the Norman duke sulked in his tent in a black mood, refusing to see visitors. Alexius had cut the ground out from under his feet, but he had come too far to stop the invasion now. His eldest son Bohemund was sent with an advance guard to form a bridgehead, and a month later, Giscard followed with the main army. By June, the Normans had reached Durazzo, the second largest imperial city, perched at the head of the old Roman road that led to Constantinople. It was well defended and seemingly impregnable, situated on a high peninsula and guarded by marshes on the landward side. But the defenders were confident that they could hold out, and that the emperor wouldn't abandon them to their fate. A few days later, they were given dramatic evidence of the imperial attention. The Venetian fleet, bribed by Alexius, showed up without warning and engaged the Norman ships in battle. Using submerged pipes, they funneled Greek fire underneath the Norman vessels, burning them below the waterline. Giscard was now in a difficult position. Without naval support, an effective blockade was impossible, and there seemed to be little hope of taking the city by storm. The two sides settled into a stalemate throughout the summer and fall, and then in October, Emperor Alexius arrived. Marching with him, as always when the emperor was in the field, was the celebrated Varangian Guard. This was an elite group made up of Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon mercenaries, and they bore a deep and personal grudge against the Normans. Fifteen years before, William the Conqueror had burst into England, killing the rightful king and subjecting the Anglo-Saxons to an increasingly brutal reign. Many of those who found life intolerable under the Norman boot eventually made their way to Constantinople, where they enlisted with their Viking cousins in the ranks of the guard. Now, at last, they were face to face with the hated foreigners who had despoiled their homes, murdered their families, and stolen their possessions. Hastings could finally be avenged. Giscard led the first attack against the center of the Byzantine line. The Normans had never yet encountered an enemy that could stand up to a cavalry charge, but against the wall of berserk Varangians, it was the Normans who broke. Repeated charges were no more effective, and the Varangians began to slowly advance, wading into the Norman line with their wicked double-headed axes. Unfortunately for Alexius, the rest of the Byzantine army failed to follow their lead. His Turkish troops chose this moment to desert, and the hopelessly outnumbered Varangians were left exposed and surrounded. The few who managed to escape fled to a nearby chapel dedicated to the archangel Michael, but there was no sanctuary against the Norman fury. The church and all within were burned to the ground. The defeat seemed to sap the remaining strength from Byzantine territory. Durazzo surrendered after another week of symbolic resistance, and the rest of northern Greece wasn't far behind. When Giscard reached Macedonia, the town of Castoria surrendered without a fight, despite being guarded by 300 Varangians. If not even the elite forces of the empire were loyal, then Constantinople was as good as one, and Giscard boasted that he would be in the capital in time for Christmas. 
For once, however, he had met his match. Alexius couldn't stop the Normans with a sword, but he still had his pen. Perhaps where armies had failed, diplomacy would succeed. Southern Italy was a tinderbox waiting to explode, filled with barons and nobles who resented the Norman yoke and despised their subservient status. They were held in check only by fear, each of them unwilling to take the first step. Alexius merely had to provide some motivation. Byzantine agents were sent to Italy loaded down with bags of gold, whispering that now was the time to strike. Almost overnight, the peninsula flared into open revolt. Giscard's representative was helpless against the wave and wrote desperately to his master that if he didn't return soon, he wouldn't have a home to return to. Giscard hesitated as long as he could. The longer he let the rebellion fester, the more difficult it would be to suppress. But he had Byzantium on its heels, and the invasion was sure to falter in his absence. Valuable ground would be lost, and the wily Alexius would have time to recover. Finally, in the early months of 1082, news arrived that forced his hand. The German emperor Henry IV was marching on Rome, and the frantic pope was calling for Norman protection at once. Taking a public oath to remain unshaven and unwashed till he returned, Giscard left the army in his son Bohemond's care and left for Italy. Pope Gregory VII was a strange ally for the rough Norman duke. Idealistic, principled, and inflexible, he was the last person who would be expected to stand by the morally ambivalent Giscard. Necessity, however, had driven them into each other's arms. Gregory was involved in a great controversy which had thrown Christendom into turmoil. He was attempting to break the church free from secular control, and it had clashed with the German emperor Henry IV. The first victory had belonged to the pope. Henry had been excommunicated and had been forced to trek to the mountainous Canosa barefoot in the middle of winter to beg Gregory to lift the sentence of excommunication. That had merely been the first battle, however, and as soon as he was strong enough, the emperor threatened to bring his army to Rome and appoint a new pope if Gregory wouldn't back down. Gregory needed a defender, and there was only one figure in Italy capable of providing it. Swallowing his pride, he had offered Giscard legitimacy and papal support in exchange for protection. The deal had worked well enough until Giscard had left for Byzantium. A letter from Alexius, along with a few bags of gold, had found their way to Emperor Henry, urging him to descend on defenseless Italy. The emperor, of course, hardly needed to be asked twice. Henry's army had little problem breaking into Rome. Gregory fled to Hadrian's mausoleum, now heavily fortified, and managed to hold out. His supporters still controlled the left bank of the Tiber, and disease began to decimate the imperial ranks. Henry withdrew with most of his forces to higher ground and settled in for a siege. Giscard, meanwhile, was busy trying to stamp out the revolt, ignoring the Pope's increasingly panicked letters. By the end of 1084, he had crushed the last resistance, and could have come to Gregory's aid, but he hesitated. As he had feared, the Byzantine campaign was in serious trouble, and if he didn't return immediately, there was the real possibility of a complete collapse. On the other hand, his attention was simultaneously needed in Rome, where a valuable ally was fighting for his life. For one of the only times in his life, Robert Giscard simply didn't know what to do. Once again, however, the decision was made for him by outside forces, this time the Romans themselves. They were by now quite sick of Gregory, blaming his inflexibility for the long siege and severe privation, and they opened the gates and invited Henry to take full possession of Rome. The emperor entered in triumph, 
declared Gregory deposed and appointed his own candidate. Giscard now had no choice but to act. If Gregory was destroyed, then so was the Houtville legitimacy. Byzantium would have to wait. Gathering a massive army from every part of his domain, he marched on Rome. Henry wasn't foolish enough to be there when he arrived. His weakened army was no match for the Normans, and he knew it. Three days before Giscard appeared, the emperor advised the Romans to defend themselves, and then slipped away. The panicked inhabitants of the city barred the gates, but they were doomed. The walls of the city had been built 800 years before during the reign of the Emperor Aurelian, and hadn't been significantly updated since. Within minutes of Giscard's first attack, his soldiers broke in and they fanned out through the city, killing and looting as they went. Gregory was escorted from Hadrian's mausoleum to the Lateran in triumph, and once again seated on the papal throne. The victory, however, was a Pyrrhic one. The Muslim and Greek contingents of Giscard's army saw the city as their prize to plunder, and started a frenzy of rape and murder. After three days of this treatment, the cowed citizens were pushed to their limit and they took to the streets, waging a guerrilla campaign against the invaders. Any semblance of order vanished in the chaos, and the Normans, realizing they had lost control, started setting fires in an attempt to flush out their enemies. The damage was immense. What wasn't burned down was despoiled, and from the Lateran to the Colosseum, barely a building was left standing. Neither churches, nor palaces, nor ancient pagan temples were spared, all lost in the inferno. Gregory had been restored, but he was now so universally hated that he had to accompany Giscard's army when it withdrew. He found a new home in Salerno, where he set up a papal curia in exile, and concentrated on his reform of the church. He died the following year and was buried, as was oddly fitting, in a Norman tomb. He was defiant till the end, but his last words were bitter. I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. Robert Giscard, meanwhile, was finally free to concentrate on Byzantium. The war hadn't gone well without him. His son Bohemond was a superb knight and a good general, but he lacked his father's ability to inspire. Despite some notable victories, he had demolished three successive armies that Alexius had sent against him. The mood in the Norman camp was increasingly defeatist. It had been nearly four years since they had sailed from Italy, and yet they were no closer to taking Constantinople than on the day they had arrived. Most of them were exhausted and homesick, beginning to feel as if this long campaign would never end. Bohemond managed to hold them together for a few more months, but at the end of the campaigning season, he committed the cardinal sin of underestimating his opponent. As he was crossing a river in northern Greece, Alexius lured him into attacking a decoy force while the main imperial army plundered the Norman baggage. After spending the better part of the day chasing shadows, Bohemond returned to his camp to find that four years' worth of spoils had vanished. For the weary army, it was the last straw. The moment Bohemond's back was turned, they surrendered in mass to Alexius. It was a severe setback, but Giscard was nothing if not persistent. Though he was now 70, he had lost none of his vigor, and he immediately gathered another army. He spent the winter in Corfu, but typhoid fever struck the camp, killing thousands. When it finally abated, he gave orders to sail to the Byzantine island of Cephalonia as the first step of the campaign. In the middle of the crossing, however, Giscard himself was struck by the fever and was barely strong enough to stand when he arrived. He died on July 17, 1085, having never lost a major battle. 
The body was taken back to Italy, but just off the coast of Otranto, the corpse washed overboard in a storm and was badly damaged. The sailors managed to recover it, but the decision was made to remove the heart and entrails and bury them in a small chapel, while the rest was embalmed and completed the journey to Venosa. There it was interred next to the bodies of Giscard's brothers in a magnificent tomb. He had lived an extraordinary life, and his accomplishments had earned him a spot as one of the greatest military adventurers who ever lived. With a mixture of vision, political skill, and force of personality, he had taken a small barony and turned it into one of the great powers of Europe. Along the way, he had evicted the Byzantines from Italy, the Muslims from Sicily, saved the reformed papacy, and held two emperors at bay. An anonymous stoneworker put it best in an inscription above his tomb. Here lies Giscard, terror of the world. The greatest of the Houtful brothers was gone, but one final sibling remained. Join me next time as I look at the career of Roger, last of the sons of Tancred. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.